welcome to the Life Church Podcast. We're broadcasting from Coralville, Iowa. For more information about Life Church, to watch a live stream, or to find a campus near you, go to lifechurchnow.org. You know, we're in this series called Greater, and today's the third part of this series. And in this series, I've really been trying to challenge us to, to see with eye, with this, to see the way God sees, to see through eyes of faith, um, to, to, to not settle for the mundane of life, to actually want more out of life, to, to, to jump into this great adventure that God, God calls us in that we call living by faith. That's really what we are called to do, right? As a follower of Jesus Christ, when I said yes to Jesus 37 years ago, when I said yes to Jesus then, what I was basically saying to God was, this is the beginning of a journey. It has not end, ended. It's, go, it's been going for 37 years now. And this journey is a journey of living by faith day in, day out, day in, day out. And what was faith for me back 37 years ago is it's just practice now. But there are still challenges, there are still mountains, there are still obstacles, there are still things in front of me that, that require me to trust God in my everyday living. And that's really what we've been talking about, inviting you to do that. So I'm challenging you to see your current problems. Many of you walked in here this morning with challenges. Some of your challenges are small, and you would say, yeah, they're small. Others of you would say your challenge is enormous. You're not sure how you're going to overcome this challenge. I want to encourage you today. I want to challenge you today to, 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 to look at your problems, to see your challenges as opportunities from God's perspective. That as we see how God sees, we see that our problems actually get turned into an opportunity for God to be magnified and glorified through our lives. Amen? And so uh, there's a book that, uh, that was written by a pastor in, in, in Washington, D.C. His name is Mark Batterson. The name of the book is In a Pit with a Lion on a Snowy Day. Um, in this book, Mark Batterson taps into, you know, the core of the human heart. Every, every human soul, every single, I could say this with, with emphasis and with conviction, every human soul, every, every, pers- every person in this room longs for significance. I mean, it looks like Significance looks different to different people. But we all want to be seen. We all want to be known. Truly known. Truly seen. We don't want to be put into a category that we don't belong in. We don't want to be separated aside. We don't want to be pushed aside. We, we want to be seen. We are in search for significance. We don't want the mundane life. We want adventure. This is why we... This is why we, we take annual vacations. We take annual vacations because we've got to break up the we've got to break up the monotony of everyday life, right? Because everyday life, punching the clock and going to work and driving and raising kids and all that, you know, it's hard to view that as fun. It's, it starts it starts feeling kind of mundane, and so we take these annual vacations. Well, the fact is that God invites you and me into an adventure of a lifetime with Him where every day can be an adventure. In fact, he has designed you. Listen to me. God has designed us for an eternal destiny, something that it's beyond our wildest dreams sometimes. Now, for some of you to imagine that design from God, it takes a lot of imagination. 
right? You'll have to leave here today and you'll have to ask God to help you dream again, to help you see the possibilities of the future. Maybe you've been beaten down, and I feel like maybe I'm speaking to somebody right now, but you've been beaten down so bad. Life has just beaten you, beaten you down, not just life, people have beaten you down. Maybe the church has beaten you down. And when I say you've been designed for destiny, God has an adventure for your life, you just look at me like, yeah, right, Rich. <laughs> I don't, it's hard for me to see. And so maybe for you, you need to leave this place and ask God, God, show me, reveal yourself to me, help me dream again, All right? Because many of you, you just, you're, you, you look at your life, you're kind of like on the back end of this, of a lot of regrets, not so much dreaming, you're just regretting a lot of things that you have done in the past, this long list of things that you have, choices you have made that are just not good, they've not helped you. So you will need to reimagine the possibilities of life. You'll need to be able to somehow or another conceptualize God in a different line, way to understand that God actually has a plan for you. A destiny for you. In fact, that's what I want to talk about today. Is that we're going to come, we're going to see a new imagination of God. Who is God, right? And I guess that's the challenge. The challenge is for us to think big. That that book that Mark Batterson wrote that I have here. Um, the the um, the verse that he used to basically write the book that inspired the book is out of Second Samuel chapter twenty three. Um, a little bit of the backstory here. This is. Um, uh, toward the end of David, King David's life. And David, in fact, in my, book, in my Bible, the caption at the very top of the chapter says, David's last words. And so he's kind of basically talking about, thinking about, and you know, processing a lifetime of walking with God, a lifetime of basically spreading the fame of God, you know? a life well lived. And David did have an amazing life. It's so amazing that here I am, here we are, 4,000 years later, we're still talking about King David. Right? Then after that, it goes into this uh, kind of a discourse on, on David's mighty men. And David's mighty men were these, these men who, who were his right-hand guys, soldiers who walked alongside him, who helped him along the way, who were faithful and loyal and, and basically took on enemies, no matter how big those enemies were, took on enemies in defense of King David. One of those guys is a guy by the name of Benaiah. And this is, this is what this book is about. It's about this this guy named Benaiah, okay? And so let's read 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse, starting with verse 20. It says about Benaiah. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, a valiant fighter from Kabzeel, performed great exploits. I want to pause there for a second because when we read, it's easy for us as we're reading the scriptures to somehow, somehow detach ourselves, personally detach ourselves from what the Bible is saying, so when we read in the Bible that a person by the name of Benaiah performed great exploits, it's easy for us to look at that and kind of detach myself. And say, yeah, that was him. I'm me. That, that's Benaiah. You know, I mean, I don't know who Benaiah is, but he must have been an amazing guy. You know, he's definitely a lot better than I am. And that's typically how we read the Bible because we walk into it too often with this idea that I somehow know that I have just messed up so badly that there's no way that God can possibly use me. But I want us to, for just a moment, if you can, for the next 30 minutes, to somehow get yourself in a place where you can say, maybe, maybe I'm like Benaiah. 
Maybe I can be like Benaiah. All right, so let me go on. It says, Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, a valiant fighter from Kebzeel, performed great exploits. He struck down Moab's two mightiest warriors, obviously a very skilled fighter. He also went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. That's crazy. Why would anybody do that? But he did. And he struck down a huge Egyptian. Although the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, Benaiah went against him with a club. He snatched a spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. Such were the exploits. Again, there's that word again. Such were the exploits of Benaiah, son of Jehoiada. He too was as famous, and I'm, I, I underline the word famous here because I want you to understand, this is a famous in the, in the classic sense of famous, right? But I want us, for our purposes, to replace this with significant. Significant. And like I said, all of us, every human soul, is in search for significance. The problem is we oftentimes find it in so many other things. Jesus wants to give us our significance, and we find it in God, especially as we attach ourselves to his purposes and his will for our lives. As we say, God, I'm just going to go all in for you, and whatever you have for me, that's what I'm going to pursue. We find, we find significance, and ultimately, eventually, you become famous. Maybe not worldwide famous, but guess what? You can be famous in your family. When you, as a father, here's what I want to do. When I die, I want my kids to, to see me as a famous dad. Famous for them, maybe for nobody else, but for, for them at least. Because I lived a life of significance before them. Not one that I could manufacture, not one that I can make on my own, but one that was about submission and surrender to Jesus Christ. So, he too was famous as the three mighty warriors. This is referring to Joseph, Eliezer, and Shema. He was held in greater honor than any of the 30. So that if you read, keep reading down, you'll find there's 30 other warriors that are, that are listed as, as David's mighty men. But he was not included among the three. Talk about those three. And David put him in charge of his bodyguard. Now again, you could read this passage of scripture and very quickly gloss over it and say, this stuff just sounds too much like fiction. Like, who are these people, right? I mean... There's just no way I could possibly identify with who these people are. I mean, who chases lions into a pit? That is not normal behavior. Normal behavior is when a lion comes out at you in the wild, you run away. That's normal. Chasing a lion is not normal behavior. And yet lion chasers, they're just wired differently. Lion chasers have courage. Lion chasers defy the odds. In this story, what we, what we discover, we get insight into how God relates to people who live by faith. That's really what I want to speak to us about this morning. See, God is about strategically placing you in the right place at the right time. You know, I, I wrote this in my notes. God is, God is um, in the business of strategically placing you in the right place at the right time. And then I realized, as I, I wrote it in my notes, and I, and I had this thought, so you're like, yeah, but you know, most of us never feel that way. Most of us feel like we're in the wrong place at the wrong time, right? That's what, how most of us operate. Sometimes, sometimes, occasionally, we find ourselves in the right place at the right time. But most of us, like, yeah, if my circumstances, I, all of us, almost every one of us could say, I wish my circumstances were a little bit different. 
I wish this had happened or I wish that, that wouldn't have happened. All right? And so here's the catch about this, about this statement I just made. Is that sometimes, for many of us, the right place often feels like the wrong place and the right time often feels like the wrong time. Have you ever been in the wrong place at the wrong time and wondered about it? And yet, this is what God wants to do with us. Encountering a lion in the wild is definitely, definitely being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And yet, being in the wrong place at the wrong time, seemingly, is exactly what launched Benaiah into fame. Isn't that something? We always want the opposite of it, and yet it's the opposite that generally develops in us what we need. So have you ever been in that place? I remember when we were, we were in Bangladesh, we served in Bangladesh as missionaries for 10 years, and I remember, um, I remember uh, I, I won, in, it was actually 1995, I had to fly back to the States for a brief, there was like a court thing going on, I had to fly back to the States for that, and um, and so I was in January of 95, and then uh, I was going to go back to Bangladesh. And so uh, it was almost, you know, Valentine's Day. So I'm thinking of my wife, and I'm thinking, my wife likes opal rings, you know. So I, was gonna, I went and found an opal ring, bought an opal ring for her. And, but I got back to Bangladesh late January, so Valentine's Day hadn't happened yet. So I put it in the box, and I, I didn't want her to find it, so I hid it in my briefcase. So it was in my briefcase the whole time waiting till Valentine's Day so then we could, you know, celebrate, you know, and I could give her the ring. And so, I, you know, I had this carried around with me. It was always in my briefcase, locked up. Nobody can get into my briefcase. I even changed the combination of my briefcase so you couldn't get into it. One of those, you know, briefcases. Funny, I wouldn't have one now, but... Um, <clears throat> so one day I get up and I'm headed to the office and I stopped at this, uh, this photo, we call it photo studio in Bangladesh. It's where you, where you take film to get it developed. And I realized as I was saying that, that some of you are like, what are you talking about? Film to get developed. <laughs> uh, there used to be cameras that had film inside of it, you know, that you had to like take it out and take it, to, you know, anyways, you know what I'm talking about. So I had to take uh, this, this roll of film to get it developed, and I stopped at this photo studio, like literally parked right in front of it, and the, got out of my, my, my van door, and there, right there is a door into the studio. My briefcase is sitting on the passenger's seat right here, and I jump out, run in there. As I'm jumping out, there's this one-legged beggar. He's standing outside my car, my van, and he's asking for money, you know, so I had a little, some change in like an ashtray, so I pulled out a coin, I put it in his hand, I walked in. You know, he's saying, bakshish, bakshish, and I just said, you know, here you go. Um, I get back and, you know, took like three minutes, max three minutes to drop the film off, get the receipt, get back in my van. I was back in my van driving. I'm driving about, I don't know, half a mile away, and I'm, I look and I notice my briefcase gone. Where's my briefcase? <laughs> and I started running through my head. Did I leave it at, did I leave it in the, at my house before I left? Well, you know, where's my briefcase? And I'm just getting really worried. And honestly, in my briefcase was my wallet, which that's, you know, there's never a lot of money in my wallet. A lot of credit cards, maybe, but there's not money. And, uh, and, but there was that ring, you know, was in there. And I was worried about the ring. And so I just, I deduced it all. I realized, no, I had my briefcase with me. It must have been that beggar. That's what went through my head. So I zipped back to the photo studio. I got out. I said, I told the guy at the photo, the guy knew me. I said, 
I had a briefcase. It's gone. I think it was this beggar. And he calls the police. The police show up and, and they're talking to me and they take me. They say, follow me to the police station. So I go to the police station and I'm sitting there in the police station and they hand me three blank white pieces of paper with uh, like carbon, like for carbon copy, you know, like a carbon paper, put it in between the three papers because you have to make this in triplicate, you know, and this was really high tech stuff in Bangladesh. And so I'm writing, I'm sitting at this desk, the sergeant's desk, you know, writing the report out, you know, I, a one-legged beggar asked for money from me. I got out real fast in, a, in, a, in, in lightning speed. He stole my briefcase. I don't know. I, you know, I, I don't know what to write a report on, you know, so I'm writing this report, right? And then all of a sudden I hear this loud shouting and screaming and commotion. And I look, I'm not kidding, I'm like writing down. And then I look up and standing in front of me are three one-legged one-legged peckers. <laughs> and these police, you know, they're slapping them around and they've got sticks and they're hitting them, you know. And, and I'm like, oh, you know. And then they said, which one? They looked at me, the sergeant looks at me, which one was it, you know. And I, you know, they just went and rounded up the one-legged beggars, you know, I guess. And and so I, I look at the guys, and I'm like, and, and immediately I saw all three of them were standing there with crutches like this. You know, they had crutches on or wearing or using crutches. And I said, no, 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 Lengra um, Manush, that's the word for what I would say a one-legged person, Lengra Manush. Uh, a Lengra Manush did it, but they, he, they have these, and I, I didn't know how to say crutches. I said crutches, and he said, oh, they, they, they all go, oh, and then they said another word in Bengali, which evidently there's two different words in Bengali for one-legged beggars. There's Lengra Manush, and then there's the other one. The Lengra Manush is the people who walk with crutches. The other one, I can't even remember the name of the other one, are people who walk around with a stick. And so they brought the wrong ones. And then they asked, well, should we go get it? And I'm like, it's fine. Just let them keep the ring. <laughs> let them keep the beefcase. You know, because these guys, I mean, they like literally had beat these guys up. Anyways, I say all that to say, you know, three minutes, three minutes. I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. I lost my briefcase, recovered it a couple weeks later without the ring, without my wallet. But, and so Benaiah could have easily thought, man, it stinks to be here in this pit with a lion. This is definitely the wrong place at the wrong time, and yet it's precisely the circumstances that God uses to elevate him, to give him fame. You see, we need to understand that our past experiences prepare us for future opportunities. Our past experiences prepare us for future opportunities. Listen to verse 23 here. It says, David put him, talking about Benaiah, in charge of his bodyguard. Now, when Benaiah was in the pit with that line, do you think Benaiah was like, man, this will really look good on my resume? I mean, if David knows that I'm down here in this pit with his line, he's definitely, definitely going to make me the, the captain of the bodyguard. I don't think he was thinking that at all. But here's what you do need to understand is that God is constantly building your resume. Right now where you sit, God is building your resume. Your circumstances, your experiences, everything you're going through, even that spat with your spouse as you were coming to church this morning is part of your resume. God's building it. The question is, are we seizing the opportunity or not, right? Sometimes those God-given opportunities come disguised as man-eating lions. So how you react to those lions or those circumstances, how you react to that stuff will determine your destiny. You can cower in fear. You can run and hide. 
or you can discover God's purposes by seizing the opportunity. So what experiences have you been, what experiences have you been going through that, that God wants to use for your future opportunities? What is it? I remember when I was 13, I had to face down this bully in my neighborhood. I grew up in Panama, the country of Panama, and, and uh, my neighborhood was called Nueva California, New California. <laughs> and um, there was this guy, he was like four years older than me and a lot bigger than me and more muscular than me and everything. <laughs> but he was a bully. And so he was always picking on my little brother. My, my, my brother Jerry was 12 years old, I was 15 years old, and he was always picking on my brother Jerry, and so one day, like in the park, he just slapped, he like slapped, like literally a slap, slapped my brother Jerry across the face, right in front of his friends, and his friends, you know, they're, they're sheepish, they don't know what to do, they're just, <laughs> they laugh, because it's a bully, right? What do you do when a bully is picking on somebody? And, and so my brother Jerry tried to hold it in, you know, he was tough, he was tough, he tried to fight, and this guy's name was Nicho, he would, he just kind of pushed him back down. And, um, and finally, you know, my brother came home and I could tell he was red on his face and he was crying. And man, that was a straw that broke the camel's back for me. I was, I was so mad. And so I remember, but I remember too, he was a lot bigger than me <laughs> and a lot, he, frankly, he was just a lot stronger, tougher, everything than me. Right. But I was so angry. I remember walking out of my house, my fists were clenched. And I walked out into the park where he was standing and I just yelled at him and my voice came out all cracked because I was terrified really, like that I'm about to get in a fight with this guy. And I walked up to him and I said, you ever touch my brother again, we're gonna fight. <laughs> and we did. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was not a good day for me. I walked around for a couple weeks with black eyes and, and uh, wounded pride. But you know, Nietzsche never touched my brother again. He never did. In fact, we became friends, Nietzsche and I. But that day I learned courage. Would I have wanted that? Would I have wanted to get in a fight? Absolutely not. But I learned courage that day. I was in Bible college many years later, and I was just kind of wrestling through, um, wrestling through a call of God in my life. You know, I knew that God was called me, but I wanted to do this, and I felt like the Lord was saying, this is what I want you to do. This is the direction I want you to go in. And I was like, but kind of like arguing with God about it. I, I, I want to do this, but God, you know, and we were kind of going back and forth. And then finally, when I said yes to the Lord, I went to the altar and I prayed. I said, God, I'll just do whatever you want me to do. Here I am. That day I learned surrender. 15 years ago, when my family and I moved to Iowa City or Coralville to start Life Church, through the years, we battled through a lot of lean years here at Life Church. Chris Carey remembers that, you know, others of you that were here early on. And it was, I mean, it was tough. We just never knew if we were ever going to get out of this, out of the rec center, if we were ever going to grow. But through those years, we, we, we learned, we learned to have, to have faith and trust in God. I've been married to Christy Green for 34 years in May. Uh, you don't have to clap for that. It's fine. I'll be, I've been married to Christy Green for 34 years. And, and uh, you know, through that, through these 34 years, I've learned commitment. Commitment. Our marriage hasn't been perfect. We've had our struggles here and there, but we've taken our vows very seriously. We've never, ever considered divorce. Now, Christy may have, I'm pretty sure she thought of murder, but I've, we've never, <laughs> ever considered divorce. Yeah. 
ups and downs of ministry for the last 35 years. We've learned endurance. So here's a lot of things. I'm saying all of this to say this, that as you go through life, you're faced with challenges. And those challenges can bring you down or they can become opportunities for God to work in your life. And that's the point that I'm making. So I would encourage you to look over your own experiences, look over in your own life and see how God is using, whether it's past or whether it's something you're going through right now, and could this be defined as an opportunity for God to be magnified and glorified in your life? What is it? Another lesson we see here uh, from the story of Beniah is that opportunities are often disguised as problems. Opportunities are often disguised as problems. For Beniah, his God-given opportunity was a man-eating lion. I would never choose that. That's not what I would choose. You know, my, what I see, when I say, when, I, when I'm thinking God's going to give me this opportunity, he's going to put a, a million dollars in my hand. That's an opportunity. And I'm going to leverage it and do good with it, right? I, I would never choose a man-eating lion as an opportunity for God to be glorified. And yet that's exactly what he does. And what's necessary, though, therefore, if that's the truth, if that's how it is for most of us, the opportunities are often challenges in front of us, then we need to have an, a, a tweaking or an adjustment of our attitude, right? That we, look, that, that we look at what seems like some of the very difficult and scary circumstances in our lives through new eyes. We see, as we've been talking about faith, see as God sees the circumstances of our life. It's an attitude. What is your attitude towards the problems that you're facing? You know, when we moved here from, from California to Start Life Church, I remember, um, <clears throat> I remember there was two prevailing attitudes. Like I would, you know, we just moved here. We hadn't started the church or anything at all. And I'm talking about starting a church to people, right? And I would have, for the most part, two different, you know, responses, two different attitudes. That Some people would say, exact, this is like word for word. They would say, oh man, really? Iowa City? Man, that is such a tough, tough ground. I can't believe you're going there. Man, I'm going to pray for you. Good luck. <laughs> I'd be like, thank you for encouraging me. That didn't feel that good, you know. But then there was other people who had a completely different attitude. Their attitude was, man, how exciting that is. What an opportunity. Same city, same work, same challenges, but two completely different attitudes. Two completely different perspectives. And let me tell you, your attitude will either keep you, keep you from realizing your destiny, or it's going to launch you, project you like a rocket into your destiny. You need to tweak that attitude. So it's going to give you the courage to go after God-sized dreams. Look, you know, when I look back at my own life, and I, you guys, I'm not trying to talk about me. I'm just, it's just, this is, this subject of faith has been such a big part of me because I, I can tell you, I can go back in my own history to markers where I had a choice and I didn't always make the best choice. Sometimes I made choices that were not really helpful and it would take me down a path, but fortunately I was able to kind of correct early on and be able to come back on the, on the right path again. But what's, what's developed over the years is this just resolve, God, I can only live. I can only live on your path with your destiny for my life. Nothing else is sufficient. Nothing else is good enough. But as I, as I look back at my own life on this, I think some of my greatest issues, regrets, don't come from the things that I've done, from the sins I've committed. They come from the opportunities that I've missed. 
Like, I wish I could go back to 1985 when a friend of mine walked up to me and he said, hey, Rich, um, I, got a, I got a proposition for you. I need $2,500. We're going to put, I'm, I've got $2,500. You get $2,500. We're going to put it together and we're going to invest in this company. It's going to be big. And, you know, $2,500 in 1985 is like a million dollars. You know, that's how it felt like. I mean, I was making $3.50 an hour at that time, you know, so it's, that was a lot of money. <clears throat> so um, I, I didn't. I, I start talking to him. He's like, yeah, this is going to be great. You know, we had never heard of this company called Walmart. You know, we just put money into this company called Walmart and then we, it would grow. But I, I didn't. I stepped away from that in fear. It's a missed opportunity. I wish I could go back. Who knows what that would be right now? Maybe nothing. I don't know. Missed opportunities are usually our greatest regrets. I can't tell you the number of conversations I had in my office where when we start talking, it starts like this. I wish. I wish I would have taken more risk when I was young. I wish I would have taken that internship. I wish I would have said I love her more. I wish I would have shared the gospel with my neighbor before she passed away. I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish. This is the regret of inaction. And these are often our most painful regrets. So if our greatest opportunities are disguised as problems, then how do we face those problems? Right? Especially if you're going through it right now. I mean, it's always easier. I know I, I tell a story from a past tense. It's always easier to look at a problem from 20 years ago and see how God took you to that and say, wow, that, that, was, a, that was a problem that God turned into a great opportunity. But when you're in the middle of it, it's always a little bit harder to do, right? And so what I'm about to say, you're going to say, well, Rich, it kind of rolls off the tongue easy, but it's a lot harder. If our greatest opportunities are disguised as problems, then what must we do? We must trust God regardless of the size of our problem or the challenge that we have. But that's hard to do. That's hard to do. I'm telling you it is. I know it is. So it requires, there's a spiritual exercise that's required. And I usually start this spiritual exercise by asking us, how big is your God? How big is your God? How big is your God? You see, I think many of us operate with this very limited view of God. We see God as slightly smaller than our biggest problem. So I have a problem. God's big, but he's just not that big. And so because that's the case, because that's how we see it, we walk around oftentimes as Christian atheists. We believe, we assent to a bunch of beliefs in the Bible, but we really don't believe that God is all-powerful. We really don't believe that nothing is impossible for him. Because after all, he'll never be able to take care of this problem in my life. But if you read the scriptures, what you'll find there's this pattern and you will discover that God loves what, it is, what is impossible situations. And not just impossible situations, he loves to wait to the very last minute of an impossible situation, it seems like, right? You identify with that? I know I've identified with that many times. Like Beniah and a lion. I mean, God could have taken the lion out way before Beniah ever fell in the pit. Didn't happen. David, this little shepherd boy facing Goliath. Elijah with the 450 prophets of Baal. I mean, even Jesus and the grave and overcoming the grave. Really, did, you, did Jesus have to die? Couldn't you, couldn't you have intervened before he died? 
Probably one of my favorite stories of impossible odds is the story of Jonathan, King Saul's son, with his young armor bearer. It's found in 1 Samuel chapter 14. <clears throat> the Israelites, the Israelite armies have been routed, and they're kind of cowering in fear to this much superior force of the Philistines. And uh, they have no weapons. The Philistines have taken all of their weapons. There's only two weapons among all the Israelite soldiers. There's 600 total, and there's only two weapons. Just Saul, King Saul, and his son Jonathan have a weapon. Everybody else has no weapon. And they're facing thousands upon thousands of armed Philistines, chariots and charioteers and all that kind of stuff, right? And so they're outnumbered 200 to 1. And this is what Jonathan says in that context, okay? Now, let's agree that in that context, this is an impossible situation, right? They are way outnumbered. In that context, it seems like there's some other things that they could do. But look what Jonathan says in, verse, in 1 Samuel 14, 6. He says, Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men, talking about the Philistines. In the first service, I accidentally said Philippines. And uh, we, we cast to, to Cedar Rapids, and we have a guy on the worship team over there that's a Filipino. I'm sure Tito's up there saying, I didn't know the Fili- Filipinos were in the Bible. Anyways... <laughs> Go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men, the, the Philistines. Perhaps, this is what he says, this is his faith. Perhaps, and notice, he says perhaps. He's like, for sure, for certain. He doesn't say that. He says perhaps. And that's oftentimes how we navigate by faith, right? We know that God is able. We know that he's capable. We know that he wants to. But man, God, it just feels like we're coming all the way to the very end here. But look what he says. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing, and here's his view of God. This is what I love, and this is what I'm going to land on. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. That's his vision of God. How big is your God? Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Jonathan has this great perspective. He has this attitude that is right. Even though the odds are stacked against him, he trusted God regardless of the size of the problem. See, I think oftentimes we work hard at, at trying to equal out the, the odds, right? That's what we do. So we see a situation in front of us. It seems insurmountable. And so instead of immediately trusting God for that situation, we start figuring out how we can man- massage it and manipulate it and make it work, and even out the odds. But you need to understand something. God likes those odds. You know why he likes those kind of odds, especially impossible situations? Because when it happens for you, you walk away from that situation, guess what? Only God gets glory. Only God gets glory. I couldn't have done it on my own. Only God got the glory. But see, it's hard for us. Faith it's trusting God regardless of the odds, but it's hard for us. We, we like the predictable. We like knowing in advance. We like that, you know, we want to be calculated. And because of that, we miss opportunities too often. In fact, in this story of Jonathan and King Saul and the armies of Israel, the rational one in this whole story is actually King Saul. King Saul knows there's 600 soldiers that he has, thousands upon thousands that the Philistines have, and he looks, at the, he looks at it and he's like, it's common sense, right? He knows that with these odds, it would be impossible for his army to win. And so what does he do? He uses common sense, which is right. 
He uses wisdom, wisdom, common sense. These are all good words. In fact, I would encourage you to navigate through life with wisdom and common sense. Do not just throw wisdom and common sense out the window. That would be all great for King Saul except for one little thing, that God's heart was with Jonathan on the battlefront. You see, God noticed not Saul's wisdom, not Saul's common sense. God noticed Jonathan's faith. Man, God sees our faith. When you step out in faith, when you say, God, I, I, I don't know how this is going to happen, but God, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to lean into you. It's amazing how God notices that. It catches God's attention, our faith. So I think most of, our, most of our struggles can be traced back to an inadequate understanding of God. We don't see God as big enough. We see God as too small. And consequently, our problems and our challenges would cause us to live in fear, cause us to retreat, to take the predictable road rather than, than the, the path of uncertainty. So let me ask you, as we bring this to an end, what's the, what's the challenge in front of you? What's the insurmountable odd that you see in front of you? What's the thing that you're facing right now? Maybe for some of you, it's your marriage. I mean, years of, years of just doing things and practices that are just decaying and decaying and decaying at the, at the marriage. It would make sense that after years of that, you would step back and look at it and say, this is impossible. This is impossible. Maybe it's your finances. Maybe you're just, you've tried and tried. It seems like it just never works. It never works. You're just going to spend the rest of your life living in debt. Maybe it's that job that's, that's just such a long shot. You'll never get there. Or like a young lady here in our church who told me last week that she has this dream of going to college and, and going into the ministry. She's a high schooler. But she says at her home, her environment at home does not support that. And so she's constantly hearing, you can't do that. You'll never do that. You'll never do that. For us here at Life Church, it's knowing that God's moving us into what seems like an uncertain future. What's, what does is, what is post-COVID church look like? And so the question is, what role will you choose? Will you choose to play it safe? Will you choose to, the, the predictable road, the easy road? Or will you defy the odds? And it's just a choice. Let's all stand. I want us to um, bring this to an end. And what I want to do, I'm going to pray for us, but I want to land on these two, going to sound kind of cheesy statements, but I think they're very important for us because I do think that they speak exactly to the heart of what God is trying to say to us. Um, but before that, I want to talk about this idea of choice. Do, do you know, do you, do you realize that um, the most spiritual thing that you can do the most godly thing that you can do is not necessarily pray. We would, many people would say that's probably one of the most godly things you could do is pray. Or fast, like we're in this season of prayer and fasting, maybe that's the most spiritual thing that you can do. Or worship or go to church. I mean, we, we have a whole list of things that we could say. These are some of the most spiritual things that we can do. But do you know in this context right now where we're at in church, you know what the most spiritual thing that you can do is you can choose. Choose life. 
Because this is what happens in a church service like this. You hear a challenge. Maybe you're processing it. You're thinking about it. You're saying, yeah, this is something that's in front of me. This is my problem. This is my over- and I know that I have to change my attitude. And I know that I have to adjust how I'm thinking. And I know that I have to invite God into my thinking. I know that I have to trust God no matter what. But then we make a choice. And half will walk out of the building and choose to, yeah, but I don't know. It may never happen. And the other half may choose, God, okay, I'm trusting you. It's a choice. Today I'm calling you to make a choice. What I want you to do, there's a little takeaway that I want, that I want you to see. Um, that when we are faced with problems, there's a little spiritual exercise that we can do. And when we're faced with problems um, and the problem comes your way, when it comes to your problem, this is what I want you to do. I want you to think small. Okay, so I have it up here. And, and here's what I'm doing. You're saying, oh, okay, Rich, that sounds so cheesy. You've probably heard this before, actually, when it comes to your problems, think small. Um, but I, I see this actually as a spiritual exercise. What I mean by that is that, um, that all of us, you cannot, not a single person in this room can avoid problems or, or, or challenges in their life. It's impossible. You're going to face them no matter what. But here's what problem, here's where our problem lies, is that when it comes our way, you know what we do? We magnify the problem. It becomes our f- central focus. It becomes everything we think about. It becomes everything we talk about. It becomes everything that, that basically moves us and everything in life. That's, I mean, it's, we just walk around with a frown on our face thinking about our problem. And so the spiritual exercise is when the problem surfaces, immediately, if it's, if it's at all possible, immediately s- say to yourself in your head, it's small. Because when I think about God, let's go to the next slide, I'm thinking big. So an instant, replace it. I have discovered something. <laughs> in, I'm not a counselor, I'm not a licensed counselor or anything like that, but I do a lot of sitting down and talking to people. I've discovered something. That those who have s- seen their problems and they can't see them as small, and they get magnified and then come to my office and we start having a conversation about it and we go, go through it and we see that maybe mistakes have been made and all that. But after we talk about it for a while and I bring up some passages of scripture and I talk about maybe some processes that you, you can operate out of and I share those with them, <laughs> it's amazing. Like the light bulb comes on and they're like, oh, that's it? Yeah, okay. Yeah, I can do that. But they spent weeks dwelling on their problem. They spent months, sometimes years and it just begins to just deteriorate and deteriorate and deteriorate their life. So when it comes to our problems, think small. When it comes to God, think big. Let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you uh, this, this morning for your grace, your love, your mercy, your kindness. I thank you that you're in this place right now. And Father, I don't, I, I don't pretend to know what everybody is thinking about or going through right now. I know that not everybody in this room is facing obstacles that are enormous and beyond their abilities. But I know that there are some in this room, Father, that are needing a, a miracle from you. They're needing a miracle of deliverance. They're addicted and they need, broke, they need that addiction broken in their life. Or they're needing their marriage to be restored. And there's been so much, so much stuff just sewn into that marriage that has brought destruction and dysfunction and brokenness and God, it just seemed like an impossible situation. There's some of those in, in this room right now. There's some in this room, Father, that their past behavior, the past actions that they have taken in their life 
have, have imprinted an image in their mind of who they are and their identity is so much built on their mistakes and their failures and they just don't see anything good about themselves. And they see anything forward, anything moving forward, any progress, any success in their life as an impossibility. But God, you like impossible odds. And so today, Father, I'm asking Holy Spirit that you will step into our hearts, that you will, that you'll begin to tweak our attitudes, that you'll begin to inform our thinking a little bit better and help us to see that you are greater than all of our problems, that with you nothing is impossible. Help us, Father, to have a new imagination of who you are. You're the God of the impossible. You're the God of miracles. You're the God of breakthroughs. You're the God of deliverance from addiction. You're the God of financial blessing. You're the God who can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ever think or ask. And right now, Father, we lean into that, and we trust you for it. In Jesus' name.